Hi, everybody. Come on in and pull up a chair. Welcome to Dorothy's Place, a podcast from Solidarity Hall. I'm Elias Krim, and with me is my co-host, Pete Davis. Hi, everyone. All right. Uh, Well, we made it to our second podcast, man. And we're going to introduce everybody to our guest, Liz Brunig, in just a second. Um, First, I thought we might just make a quick comment on one subject, uh, which is what we're not doing, and that is... How come, somebody might ask, that people as interested in politics as we appear to be are not really talking about the morning newspaper on this podcast? Why are we not doing that? Pete, why aren't we doing that? (laughs) Well, I think politics exists at different timescales. So there's the day-to-day politics of the latest uh, palace intrigue at the White House, but there's also, you know, 10-year politics, 20-year politics. And you know, I'm a proponent of the slow politics movement, huh. which is uh, which like is that. the idea that we need to have commitments to long term projects and that if we just ride out the day to day happenings of a chaotic uh, political world, we're just going to be reactive and we're not going to have the type of reflection, commitment and work that's going to be needed uh, to to like a ch- to actually take some um, mastery over our, our world. You know, the. Um, uh, Walter Lippmann had this old book at the turn of the century, Drifter Mastery, hmm. and uh, Drifting Mastery. And it's like if you're totally adrift if you're just in the tornado of daily politics. But we as a community can kind of take mastery over our destinies if we can start lengthening our, our scale. And there are bigger political questions than like, is Trump uh, going to have to testify or something? There's mm-hmm. questions like the factory economy is becoming the service economy. There's questions like, uh, multi-generational uh, care is going down. There's questions like how do we um, how do we build solidarity in a multicultural country? You know, these are huge questions, and and they're going to be solved in the 25-year timescale. And so, um, I hope here at Dorothy's Place we can talk about people that are that are uh, midway through the long walk <laughs> of uh, of uh, positive. A uh, positive uh, untying of the knots that right. um, that we've gotten into. Sounds like Chairman Mao's long march. You know? Yeah, no, I, ch- I chose walk specifically. <laughs> no, <but laughs> okay. Let's be clear. Let's be clear. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, right. And the other thing is, you know, there's an expression that, uh, you know, old uh, uh, boomer dudes like me remember, which is uh, root causes. You know, I, I talk to my teenage daughters as they try to figure the world out. And I say, look, guys, one thing that you don't seem to quite get is that beneath the surface, there are forces here you need to try to get a grip on, you know, mostly economic. Um, but that, that dimension is just so difficult to see or hear about anymore in the public conversation. And I think it is part of the, the uh, Dorothy's Place and Solidarity Hall agenda to try to reground uh, some of the conversation in those forces in order to understand them and indeed eventually uh, try to remaster them. Yeah, you know, people who, I, I totally hear you on that, you know, people who start to kind of take the time to reflect, to get into the weeds of what's actually happening in people's lives and start taking action on long projects to, to help it out, they don't process politics as like, chaotic one thing after another you know it's a much more calm and enlivening uh process and um and you know i don't think the latest thing on like a twitter newsfeed um 
makes anyone want to keep putting in the work. But once you start taking the long view, it, it starts seeming really exciting. You know, what, what did we get done this year? You know, yep. you know, what, what are some, what are some uh, positive alternatives that are growing, you know, things like that. So that's right. That's right. That, that's the ability that um, I'm, I'm hoping to coach my daughters on a bit where you pick up the daily newspaper and, and you might say there's very few surprises. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's interesting. It's right? not, yeah. This all came from somewhere. Yeah. You know, this all came from somewhere. This started like a long time ago. Okay, we're you know we're in the middle of it. That's all. So, anyway, that's a cool. That's a cool practice. It's like that'd be a really fun thing for like a high school history teacher yeah. to do, which is take the the newspaper. You know, this would be a great uh, curriculum. Mm-hmm. The first day of school of a semester, take the newspaper. Take, cut out every article yeah. and have the challenge for the uh, semester right. to be take every single yeah, article in one day's newspaper and yeah. put it in a historical trend. Because yeah. I think you could have a whole unit, you could have a whole semester just on one day of a newspaper. Right. Pr- <laughs> you know, practically, uh, pr- practically everything except maybe uh, Beyonce's latest video would fit. You know? and, even, and even that, and even that would fit. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, that's in a lot of cultural trends too. So. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> Well, so spe- speaking of watching these things, you have a uh, group picked out for us, a solidarity uh, group. Who are you thinking about? Uh, this is actually a great slow politics movement group and a great solidarity yeah. hall group, which is um, which is the Next System Project, mm-hmm. which um, one of their leaders who I got turned on to and thus turned me on to them was Gar Alperovitz. Yeah. Um, Garl Perovitz started as uh, writing one of the the first takedowns. I guess it's more important than just a takedown, but um, of the atomic bomb as necessary. You know, there was a right. critical consensus that it was completely necessary. No other option. He put one of the first chinks in that armor. Um, this then could he be went, referred to and was referred to at the time is a career limiting move. You know. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, um, like very controversial in oh, peak of Cold yeah. War America. Oh, God. Um, he went on to be the that in the high up in the staff, I believe of the I forgot the name of the senator. He's from Wisconsin. Yeah. Who started Earth Day? That's right. And um, uh, and so he was a Senate staffer, so really was in the weeds of politics. And then, um, and then started uh, asking himself this question, and I love this question: If you don't like corporate capitalism, but you don't like state socialism, what do you like? Yep. And when he says state socialism, he means not, you know, the like Medicare for all. He means like Stalinism. Right. Um, and but what a great question! You know, there's so many people who say, oh, if you don't like Stalin, then you just have to deal with Etna. Mm-hmm. You know. And, um, <laughs> And uh, but he's like, there must be a broad middle. And he spent the latter, like the third act of his life in this broad middle. And out of that, he's discovered, you know, and he's he's created many organizations around this current iteration is the Next System Project. And it's looking into the cooperative economy, uh, uh, land trusts, uh, you know, uh, uh, state uh, sovereignty funds like the Alaska Fund, which pays out from resources to every one of its citizens. And so the whole range of institutional forms that are between a free market and statist mass production. And so, um, and these forms are so uh, inspiring. He, he turns on, you know, he, he re talks about Mondragon in, um, Mm -hmm. in Spain, which is this whole town of cooperatives. He talks about evergreen cooperatives in Ohio, um, which are, 
um, worker-owned mm-hmm. uh, organizations. He talks about how Burlington, you know, did land trusts so that there isn't gentrification and housing crises. And um, and when you read the the think tank white papers that are coming out of the Next System Project, your your whole mind opens that there is an alternative and um, there is an answer to that question uh, that he asked. So it, um, it check it out. Stuff. It's like also you go on their website. I believe it's. Um Make sure I got it right here. It is thenextsystem.org. Um, part of it, or actually, it's it's out of his group called the Democracy Collaborative, uh, which is housed at the University of Maryland, I believe. But yeah, great stuff. And there are must be about a dozen of these white papers up on the website. They are perfectly readable. They're not super dense, you know, data encumbered things. Um, and they go in all sorts of different directions. They are terrific stuff, terrific uh, articles. Yeah, check it out. Good one. Related. And over to yeah, you ahead. for a very specific type of cooperative. Yeah, of uh, exactly. Um, and I, there's probably, I'm sure, there's some of that uh, in Gar's uh, Next System materials, particularly from a guy named Michelle Bowens who runs a thing called the P2P project, peer-to-peer. So this is a big subject, but <clears throat> what, what, they're, what they're concerned about is essentially that terrible misnomer, the sharing economy, which turns out is more like the extractive economy in a new mask, you know. Um, but there's a group of activists, particularly around the New York area, that have formed a thing called platform cooperativism, and the idea is to take a very old notion, which is that of cooperative endeavors <clears throat> of all kinds, and tie that to the digital uh, platform economy and digital democracy. So th- the idea is that you know we need to find a way that people who are in the gig economy, working short-term jobs, very precarious, no benefits, um, you know, n- no agency, no leverage over the employer. And finally, and most importantly for this project, no ownership. You know, you, you create it, you give it away, on to the next project. That's it. You, you accumulate nothing. So there's a, an anthology came out maybe a year ago now called Hours to Hack and to Own. The editors are two guys, Trevor Schultz and our friend Nathan Schneider. And there are um, lots of interesting people that have contributed on this subject. Uh, one of them is uh, Douglas Rushkoff. And his book, by the way, if you guys don't know it, uh, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus is a fantastic book exactly on this problem. Also in the anthology is Juliet Shore, a guy named Yokai Binkler. Uh, I mentioned Michelle Bowens, uh, Saskia Assassin and David Bollier, who writes on the Commons, and then uh, Trevor Schultz also. Um, It's great stuff because it's really some of the only thought um, on this question of what is digital work, uh, what's going to happen to digital workers, and is there any alternative to this uh, slow and grinding process uh, whereby um, our capacity as workers to own anything 
um, and get the kind of uh, st financial and and you know personal stability from that. Uh, is, is there any way to protect that anymore? So, great, great stuff. Okay, um, now let's get to Liz Brunig. And today we're talking to our friend Elizabeth Brunig. And we've known her for a little bit. She was a contributor to um, actually our first book at Solidarity Hall, our anthology. And um, also, well, rather than me trying to give your uh, biography, Liz, how about if we let you uh, tell, uh, tell the audience about yourself? All right. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, my name's Liz Brudick. I have a slight cold, uh, <laughs> so I don't usually sound so stopped up. Um, I uh, went to a Brandeis University. I studied English, sociology, and, and Near Eastern Judaic studies, and then went to Cambridge, got my uh, MPhil in Christian theology, and studied Augustine. Um, and after that, I wrote about him quite a lot, sometimes on the internet, uh, and from there worked at the New Republic as a staff writer on politics and religion and now an editor at the Washington Post um, for our Sunday essay section. That's about it. And I, I live in Washington, <clears throat> D.C. with my husband and my one-year-old little girl. I was about to ask, how's the baby? She is doing great. We are right <laughs> on the verge of walking. Very good. Um, so she can kind of sprint on all fours and I'm just kind of terrified to think about what walking will mean in terms of great, keeping up with great. her. <laughs> very, very exciting. That's good. That's good. I also was wondering, do I remember correctly, you guys live in the D.C. area. Are you in Alexandria? No, no, we're not too far. We're in Woodley Park. Oh, okay. the northwestern corner of D.C. Ah, yeah, Maryland. okay, okay. Very good, very good. <clears throat> well, great. Well, let's see. Uh, there's a bunch of fun stuff that we would like to ask you about. But you know what? You know how maybe you guys probably listen to... Um, on Being with Krista Tippett, which is a wonderful podcast. You know how she always begins by asking, tell us what your spiritual background was. I thought I'd do kind of a, a variation on that and, and ask you, Liz, growing up in, Alex, in um, uh, Arlington, Texas, uh, a neighborhood I know a little bit, being a native Texan myself, um, tell us about your political conversion, because I don't think in high school in Arlington, you read a lot of Christian socialism. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a pretty short supply. Yeah. Uh, I didn't even know they were Christian socialists yeah. uh, until I was a little bit older than that. Um, so uh, I grew up in Arlington, and so did my husband. In fact, he lived down the street from me. You're kidding. Um, I didn't know that. No, wow. No, we, were, we were on the debate team together. I met Matt when I was 16. Oh, no kidding. Um, huh. So Matt grew up very, very, very poor. Uh, he was on welfare, he was periodically homeless. Um, there was a lot of police involvement in his life uh, in terms of his parents. Um, and so Matt had a lot of reasons to think about why some people have enough to get by and other people don't. Hmm. Um, and there are a lot of answers to that question. Um, it's you know, a multifarious issue. Um, but Matt did a lot of thinking about political economy. And uh, as his debate team partner, uh, I was obliged to talk with him about these things quite a bit. Um, and so pretty early on, um, you know, Matt had uh, very unorthodox ideas about how society should be organized in terms of uh, distribution. And, and I 
you know, Sadi kind of had a good point. Um, the difference was that in Matt's reasoning about distribution in society, I could see all of these points that corresponded to Christian reasoning. Hmm. I was a Methodist at the time. I was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, I worked at vacation Bible school, loved my church, um, and, and, you know, have always been pretty pre-involved in, in the faith, and I could see things that he was saying that sounded to me like they corresponded with Christian ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I wondered, as I you know, kind of got older and went off to college, are there other Christians who have seen the same thing I have seen? Um, and is there a way to synthesize these ideas where nothing is lost um, from the Christian faith? You know, the, the most typical critique you hear when you kind of air Christian socialist ideas is that socialism is secularizing, um, that it doesn't really have any room for faith. Um, and once I got to college, I started to see that historically there have definitely been, you know, Christian socialists started reading John Ruskin pretty early on, yeah. um, and then you know got into more radical 20th century figures um, as I continued my reading. And, and I, I found that that was a viable, you know, tradition, you know, at least intellectually, not necessarily maybe the United States has it had the most luck politically so far, um, but intellectually, it's a, it's a coherent and it's a vibrant tradition. And so I started reading and writing in that tradition. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, in, in my history of kind of mixing religion and politics, you know, it started out, you know, I was always a liberal Democrat and when I started discovering my faith more, I usually just said, oh, my Christian faith supports standard liberal economic policies. But then as I got deeper into it, I started noticing that there was a, there was a very important nuance between, you know, uh, redistribution, liberal, regulatory and welfare state economics and Christian economics. There was a lot of overlap. Yeah. But there was a difference, and I'd love, Liz, if you could talk a little bit about, um, for our listeners who aren't as well-versed on this, what are some of the nuances between Christian economics and standard kind of 20th century welfare and regulatory liberal economics? Sure. So, uh, you know, I grew up in the 90s. I was born in 1990. Um, and so the, the, the Democratic Party that I inherited was a hev- heavily, you know, Clintonized Democratic mm-hmm. Party. You know, sort of far from the Great Society Democratic Party. And most of the Democrats that I knew, um, even in, you know, in Texas, but even as I went off to college, were pretty skeptical of of, of the welfare um, state uh, in certain regards. You know, either they felt like it was an electoral loser, or they felt like it was bloated or overburdened. Uh, and so on and so forth. And so the most that I really heard about was sort of work there, programs, job skills training. And there's certainly a place in the world for job skills training and education. Um, you know, in the, in the order of things, those are very important. Um, but uh, to me, they seem to have a couple of problems. So, you know, Democratic Party economics, they're just liberal economics. Um, they all, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, they all come out of a liberal way of thinking about the economy. And the goal is um, to let each person be a pretty fully atomized, independent individual and to interfere with market forces as little as possible um, and in that way to grant everyone the greatest amount of liberty possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, Christianity 
it's a pre-modern institution. It's not a, it's not a, well, it's not an institution. The Catholic Church is a pre-modern institution. Christianity is a pre-modern philosophy. So it does not really adapt all that well to liberalism. Um, there's just a very different uh, internal logic inside Christianity. And, and one of those pieces of logic is that people are not and should not be atomized, entirely separate, uh, without any interdependencies. Um, it's actually that you are your brother's keeper, that people do have important and powerful obligations to one another um, that, yes, impede on your liberty, and that's okay. In fact, it's a good thing. Um, and we should all be so lucky as to take all of those obligations as seriously as we should. Now, we'll be less free to do whatever we want, whenever we want, um, but that's not the point of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from that different anthropology, a different way of thinking about what people are, what they ought to be like, um, comes different ways of thinking about how people should operate you know, inside markets and inside politics. And then the other issue is the liberal theory of property. Um, compared to the Christian theory of property, you know, is highly absolutist, um, and it has, uh, you know, what I consider to be a lot of metaphysical problems, but liberal theorists of property like John Locke imagine property rights that are far more absolute um, than Christianity. Uh, you know, Christian thinkers like Augustine and Aquinas, Ambrose, and so on are really willing to imagine. Um, so when we think about, you know, what is the world and what is it for, Christian theorists will say it's for supporting everybody in common. And, you know, especially the least of these, the most vulnerable, the weakest. Um, And liberal theorists of property will say, well, there's just a set of rules that are sort of um, morally neutral. Everybody is an equal proprietor of their own rights. um, And then there are certain metaphysics that govern the ownership of property. And then there are civic institutions that mediate those. Um, And if you happen to have tons and tons and tons of property and someone else has none, you know, that's just you exercising your rights. Um, and Christianity mm-hmm. says, actually, that's an unfair usurpation of what is owed to them by God's intent for the world. So that's sort of where I started picking up on important basic differences that that translate into different policy ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, before we started today, Liz, Pete and I were just talking about a couple of other groups that we feel some affinity for, and this put me in mind of a, a question that I thought I would actually ask both of you. Um, there's a group called Front Porch Republic. Do you know them? I do. Yeah. <clears throat> and there's a guy there, one of the founders is a very interesting guy, mm-hmm. now teaching at Notre Dame, named Patrick Deneen. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> he has written very interestingly about... Um, an aspect of, of inequality and social justice, um, which has to do with our notions of the meritocracy. Actually, all three of us, you know, we have we have nice degrees. <laughs> we could all, you know, raise our hands and claim to be part of the meritocracy in a way. Deneen's story was that, and you probably know this, he was at Georgetown, and he had a very nice career, training very smart undergrads from all around the country the best and the brightest, often for the uh, diplomatic service, State Department, uh, the UN, the World Bank. And after reading enough Wendell Berry um, and a few other authors, I'm sure, he picked up, left Georgetown, you may know this story, and moved to Notre Dame, to South Bend, Indiana. 
um, a, little, a little place, really. But uh, Deneen felt that this was kind of a lifestyle gesture that indicated his discontent with a number of things, um, certainly the, the Beltway ambience, but also, I think, in a larger sense, the whole uh, meritocratic system. Um, this is something I think we all think about occasionally, but I thought I would just throw this out and see if you have any thoughts on it for the moment. Yeah, I definitely, I know Patrick. Um, he's a really, really brilliant guy. Yeah. And he was one of the first people I've read, actually, during the Hobby Lobby case, who was writing oh, um, right, right, yeah. explicitly about liberalism yep. and Christianity. <clears throat> yep. Um, and I think that in the time since Patrick did his writing on liberalism, Christians writing about liberalism as a historical phenomenon, as a, as a philosophy, has become a lot more common, a lot more prominent. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that, you know, for electoral reasons over the, over the past year or so, um, you know, in the secular sort of mainstream, writing about liberalism, pardon me, writing about liberalism has become more common as well. Um, and, and I definitely sympathize with the way he feels. I live in Washington, D.C. It's like Augustine in, in Carthage <laughs> um, in a lot of ways. Um, and and I I like his way of thinking, and I and I like that he feels that obligation to train people's souls, right? That he wants a kind of relationship mm -hmm. with his students and his role as a teacher that isn't so, you know, processing uh, cattle for meat, yep. in a way. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And and that in a certain <clears throat> way is the meritocracy is this double-edged sword. Yeah. Um, where on the one hand, um, people. Uh, with, you know, usually a lot of privilege to begin with, are able to rack up um, a lot of signifiers and uh, accreditations that make them then uh, front-of-the-line picks for positions that will only continue to accrue their privilege. Uh, and I can't exclude myself from that. Um, and then, you know, you have people like my husband, Matt, who went to college on a full-ride scholarship because he had to, um, and then went to law school on a scholarship because he had to. So mm -hmm. Matt mm -hmm. could have gone to Harvard, but he couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't afford that. Not, you know, living expenses and, and moving, it just wasn't feasible. So he took his National Merit Scholarship and he went to the University of Oklahoma because they mm -hmm. offered him a really big scholarship. Um, and then he got into Cornell and Georgetown law schools, but he couldn't afford it. He went to BU Law because they gave him a scholarship. So he falls behind in the meritocracy. Um, in certain ways because of the names on the degrees, um, but he is he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. he was held back, not by any lack of ability, but because he was just born in a, in a lower station yeah. Yeah. than other people who are able to launch themselves higher. At the same time, people who go through the sort of meritocratic rigmarole, like I was saying, they're cattle processed for meat. They're, they're not given any, any spiritual instruction. They're not <clears throat> treated as moral agents. Um, they're treated as interchangeable sort of cogs um, that are being fitted for a machine. Yeah. And, and I don't think that's very fulfilling either. Yeah, yeah. Pete, do you have a thought on yeah. this? Yeah, you know, I've 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 seen it firsthand and there's dark things about it. You know, one is one is that the you know, the uh, a failed meritocracy masquerading as a pure meritocracy. You know, I ran the numbers on Harvard Law School. And if you make double the median income, if your family makes double the median income, you're at the you're you're in the bottom 20 25 percent of Harvard Law School. So most of these wow. schools are already just wealthy <clears throat> folks just yep. solidifying their uh, class privilege. 
And, you know, I sometimes think of it as conservative, uh, wealthy folks just transfer their money through inheritance, um, whereas liberal wealthy folks launder their money through these institutions so that their kids can feel like they earned it. Um, but then there's this deeper critique of meritocracy, which is even if we have pure meritocracy, that was very fair. Democratic politicians are talking about, you know, if you play by the same rules, if you work hard, you can be at the top. Um, that's the country we want where the best are at the top and the worst are at the bottom. You know, that's still not a vision of a country that we want. You know, it has no reference to community, to solidarity, to everyone making it. And I think in the end, um, you know, the politics that kind of drops meritocracy and, and actually has some, you know, we want everyone in the country to make it, you know, <laughs> you know, we want everyone mm -hmm. in the country to feel connected with each other. Uh, we want everyone in the country to feel have fulfilling lives. Um, that's going to resonate a lot more than kind of the standard. Oh, you know, we're going to give you a shot in this very hard, uh, hard edged game. Um, and uh, and one final thing is, you know, a lot of meritocracy is taken the worst of aristocracy, which is, you know, a, a small group of people running everything and feeling disconnected from everyone else and gotten rid of one of its good qualities or somewhat good qualities in its best uh, instances of noblesse oblige. You know, yep. a lot of aristocratic people were trained in, hey, you, you got lucky, try to do some good work, whereas meritocratic people are saying, you know, I deserve this. I deserve the salary. I don't need to do good work. And so um, there's a lot uh I think I think there's a lot to be said about uh, turning our spotlights on on that form. Um, mm -hmm. I um, I I'd love to ask you, Liz, about, you know, you're one of the prominent figures, I'd say, of the religious left. Um, I don't know if you think about yourself that way, but at least other people do. And there have been different takes on the religious left. Um, one, there's recently a big I don't know if it was in The Times or The Post on kind of the rising popularity of the religious left with William Barber and Wallace and Sister Simone uh, Campbell. But then there's been other takes that there's hardly any religious left among millennials and, you know, don't stick, stake your hope in this. Um, so I'd love to hear, um, and this is just to segue from the last group, this is a group of people that are kind of unmasking the meritocracy. Um, and so I'd love to hear your take on, are you bearish or bullish on the religious left and among uh, the religious left among young people, what gives you hope? What gives you worry? Yeah, so I mean, I'm both I'm both bearish and bullish. Um, I think that the religious left, as a as a as a phrase, calls to mind the religious right, um, and the religious left in the United States. I don't think is ever going to be a parallel to the religious right. The religious right has a lot of things that the religious left just doesn't have. It has a donor base. Mm -hmm. um, it has strong institutional ties with the Republican Party. It has extraordinary numbers um, inside that party. So the religious right, um, you know, white evangelicals are the single biggest constituency inside the Republican Party. Um, and so they're a coveted voting bloc. And so, you know, Republican power players are really interested in capturing those votes and they're willing to, you know, sort of wheel and deal for them. Sometimes just with evangelical leaders, you know, there's a reason people like um, uh, Ted Haggard um, and I'm blanking on his name for some reason. 
uh, Jerry Falwell, there we go, mm, yeah. um, and, and the, the Liberty University crowd are, are such important figures in the Republican Party, and that is they give Republican politicians access to evangelical voters, um, and, and that's what they need to win elections. Um, and, uh, and there just isn't a parallel to that inside the Democratic Party. The single biggest religious constituency inside the Democratic Party are none. Um, are people who would say they're being <laughs> agnostic or nothing in particular. Right. Um, and so the Democratic Party, the leadership, just doesn't have uh, a, an incentive to bargain with the religious left in terms of what they'll prioritize in their playing, how they'll set up their rhetoric, the kind of policies they'll pursue um, when they're in office. Uh, and there's no obvious donor base to fund the religious left either. Uh, obviously, the religious left isn't going out there and lobbying for policies that are helpful to corporations. And so um, people with lots of money aren't really interested in funding those movements. On the other hand, all that being said, you know, the religious left has been an important force in American history. It's, it was behind abolition. It was behind civil rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one thing you notice about all those different movements um, is that you know the religious left is a powerful protest movement. It is not a powerful force of you know workaday institutional politics like the religious right is, but it's a powerful force for igniting and pushing important moral changes in society. Not only political changes, but moral ones. You know, civil rights wasn't only a change of policy. Over time, it became a big change in the way we think about other people, our neighbors, and what we owe to them. Same thing with abolition. Um, it's the same thing with prison abolition, which the Christian left is involved in now. Um, you know, and and I think that that is a fantastic role for the Christian left to fulfill. Is a role of contradiction. Is a movement that is willing to um, be morally resolute against institutions and behaviors in society that we don't think too much about but are incredibly wrong morally and i think in terms of facing off with inequality the accumulation of wealth and income at the very top um, poverty in the united states in this very rich great nation that we have i think the christian left can play a very important role in not shutting up about that and making it a loud and uncomfortable issue until it changes yeah yeah uh, you know, Liz, um, I think maybe a year or two ago, you did a piece for Dissent, which was on the um, history of the Christian commitment to leftist or socialist politics. And in that piece, actually, you mentioned a book by a guy named Heath Carter on the labor movement in Chicago. Heath is a friend of mine, so that sort of caught my eye. And another guy that we know in common is Nathan Schneider. Yeah. Right. So, so who else? Who else do you keep up with? Let's just do a little name dropping because I think maybe people would be interested to know who to look for out there that are doing this kind of work and writing. Yeah. So I mean, there's Sojourners is sort of the classic um, left uh, Protestant mm-hmm. publication. Um, it's run by Jim Wallace, who's a really great guy, and they have lots of young evangelical and other mainline Protestant writers there who are on the left, yep. um, and they especially good at addressing, um, you know, issues that maybe aren't commonly discussed in in churches across America. So Jim Wallace is really focused on racism Mm -hmm. um, and and racial inequality as being an important Christian issue. Um, Just this week, I think Sojourners had a fantastic cover story on megachurches and and even smaller um, churches and gentrification. Uh, Churches moving into poor neighborhoods. 
you know, mm-hmm. and bringing in wealthier people and then changing the kind of ecosystem of those neighborhoods. It's usually fascinating. It's important to think about um, in terms of how we can, you know, form relationships but not shatter communities with our with our actions. Um, and then Nathan Schneider's a great guy. Heath Carter's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Cornel West is sort yeah, of yeah. eccentric and fun. Yep. Um, you know, Christian Marxist figure um, in the black church. There are lots of really interesting uh, Christian left figures. Um, you know, Benjamin Dixon is a guy who has a podcast, um, you know, on progressive politics. And you might not know it, but he's mm-hmm. he's also a faithful Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are lots of people out there um, who seem to identify this way. It's just that you know, unlike the religious right, we don't usually organize along these lines. Um, Addie Mena is a great reporter and writer for the Catholic News Agency. She's also my baby's godmother. Huh. Um, she's a, she's on the Catholic left. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a I have actually a Twitter list, the Catholic Left and Friends, um, and it's called <laughs> the Catholic Left and Friends because we have one Anglican and one Orthodox person <laughs> 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 who are just our friends, but they're also on the left. Um, and so that's, you know, great people, great writers like Barbara McClay, who is uh, Anglican and, and interested in you know some of the left kind of christopher lashian critiques of capitalism mm-hmm. uh, and modernity yvonne please just um, an orthodox guy who who sort of lines up with some of our uh critiques and he does fantastic work um matthew schmitz um yes. considers himself along the christian uh, catholic socialist lines um, mm-hmm. and he is an editor and writer for first banks mm-hmm. magazine which is needless to say not been home over time to many christian socialists but times are changing mm-hmm. um, and so, so some uh, some great people that, that i really love keeping up with very good very good um one thing i've uh that's been interesting about your public life on the internet um is that you are adjacent to this growing uh trend of kind of the the irony left, the dirtbag left, the chapo left, this whole um, this whole world of folks um, that are insurgent and it's working and it's gathering steam. It's getting a lot of support for uh, the Bernie side of the Democratic Party and the DSA. But you maintain, um, uh, despite being adjacent to that group, you maintain like a positive, non-ironic, um, non, uh, I would describe it as like non-violent, um, style in the way that you engage. Um, and I've been really interested in what is like the Christian style of engaging in politics. You know, Martin Luther King said, you know, there was like a way to act nonviolently beyond just physical violence, but also just in the way you talk, you don't, um, kind of attack people. You don't individualize it. And you've practiced that. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on the Christian style of politics and, um, and uh, what the role is of of uh, of how we engage with our opponents. Um, you also said one one more interesting thing I want to throw in there in this question is you said something that totally resonated when you came to speak at Harvard Law that you said the left liberal civil war um, is hopeful for the future of compromise because you only fight with each other when you're going to compromise soon, whereas you don't fight with each other. Uh, with people that are uh, so far uh, in disagreement with you. So I'd love your just kind of thoughts on how do we engage um, as Christians in politics? Yeah. um, So 
you know, I love joking around. It's in my Twitter bio that I love jokes. Um, I like watching other people joke because I don't actually have a great sense of humor myself. I just like other people. Um, and so the dirt bag left, um, you know, as I understand it, um, is, is an expression of, you know, usually young left politics that's kind of frustrated with the institutional democratic party, um, and, and frustrated with a lot of the kind of, um, taboos the Institutional Democratic Party has because of the way it's set up in terms of its donor base around criticizing corporations, criticizing banks, um, criticizing uh, the way that, you know, wealth is distributed through society instead of just, you know, um, talking about education programs or hyper-wonkish policy points. The Dirtbag Left is a left politics that's interested in moral expression. Um, and I think you see that a lot in, you know, sort of the Sanders versus Clinton campaigns. Clinton would always say, you know, what are the policies? What are the details? What is the, what is the, you know, inner workings? And Sanders would say like, yeah, well, that's what you have policy people for. I'm here for expressing the moral reasons that we need to be adopting programs that have these, you know, kind of moral outcomes like single payer. Nobody is left out of it. Um, you know, and so on and so forth. And I think that the, the dirtbag left and new left, the irony left falls along those lines. Um, and the reason that they have a reputation as being kind of, you know, dirtbaggish or ironic is because the way they criticize the sort of institutional um, center left is usually by satirizing them. Um, and they, they don't always engage the way that I do. Um, and, and I don't always engage the way that I should. I certainly said mean things online that I shouldn't have. And I want to be very upfront about that. Um, I'm certainly not out there um, behaving in the way that I wish I would every day. <laughs> I'm, I'm only made some mistakes i get mad online like anybody else um but you know in terms of the way that i try to engage i think there's definitely a role for christian um political engagement to be very aggressive and very expressive um you think of jesus overturning tables in the temple um but i think those need to be carefully chosen battles and i don't think that should be a day-to-day operating measure um, so the way that I try to engage people from a Christian point of view, like you said, is, is not violently. I try to hear them out. Um, I'm interested in understanding the real source of disagreement. Um, and I'm interested in presenting the other person's point. You know, part of a conversation about a disagreement is a stage where you echo back to the other person what you mm-hmm. think their position is. Um, and I'm interested in doing that as fairly as humanly possible. Um, and I think that is such a crucial point uh, in terms of Christian engagement, seeing the other person. Uh, you know, the, the word respect, it comes from, I think, respicio, uh, which is a Latin term for, uh, for seeing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you respect to somebody, you see them as they really are, right? You, you, you fully view them, understand them, um, in, in my view. Um, and so when I am engaging in a respectful discussion, I want to fully see and understand the other person. And I want to echo back to them what they're saying in a way that they agree with, that they would endorse. And I think if you can get through these, that stage of an argument, um, the other party is usually much more willing to do the same for you. Um, and then you have a much better chance at kind of finding a synthesis or an agreement where maybe there wasn't that option before. And, and opening up that opportunity for, you know, as Pope Francis says, encounter, um, or opening up that opportunity for a discussion that is really loving. Um, you know, after all, if there's respect, there can be love. Um, 
I think is, is, is how I try to carry out, you know, Christian arguments in politics. Very good. Very good. Liz, you know, um, newlyweds uh, often have this kind of uh, relative type who comes around early in the marriage and is always asking, you know, are, are you ready to um, ready to show us the baby yet? You know, do you have plans? Uh, I'll, I'll play a different version of that and ask you, uh, do you have a book in the works? <laughs> I don't, because uh-huh. I have a baby. I have a real baby. All oh, right, right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fully hope one day to write something a little bit longer okay. than, than blog posts and okay. essays. No rush, no pressure, there. no pressure. <laughs> and, uh, and right now when I think about... Um, like even doing the dishes, I'm like, oh man, <laughs> that's going to be a little bit of a challenge because Jane's going to be there and she's going to want to help. What's this? What's that? Um, can you pick me up? Can I touch the water? Can I touch the soap? Can I blow a bubble? And, uh, <laughs> so everything that's in the cool. takes sure. Sure. <laughs> a little bit longer. Um, but one of these days, I definitely like to write something a little longer. I you know I'm probably with my husband because um, mm-hmm. I think Matt would like to do that too. And we've been together, I think, ten years now. Um, wow. This will be our third wedding anniversary this month. Um, so, you know, we work together well. Yeah, yeah. Just out of curiosity, are there uh, women writers that you think of as, as models in a way? You know, I'm thinking of people. I enjoy Rebecca Solnit a great deal. Um, Naomi Klein has lots of great stuff going on. Do you have any, do you have any people that you think of that uh, you find inspiring? Oh, yeah. Well, so Augustine. Um, yeah, that's right. It's sort of hard act to follow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love reading Gus, and I was just reading Sarah Ruth's big new translation of Confessions, hmm. which attracted some controversy, um, but I think it's really interesting, and I'm, I'm going to be reviewing that. Um, I really like Matthew Schmitz. I think he's a great writer, and I think he's a great interlocutor, um, and he's about my age. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, you know, sort of a great um, role model. Um, Let's see, people that I read a lot and I really like. Actually, I get along pretty well with Ross Duthat, um, so I yeah. like Colin Sneerton. Disagree with his politics pretty strongly, um, but I like how, how he sets up his arguments. I think that he usually does it in a pretty interesting way, and he reads very widely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a, um, a good way to do things. Um, and I try to do that as well without being obnoxious about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. There's a great uh, sociologist, Kate Bowler, who wrote a fantastic book on the prosperity gospel called Hmm. Blessed. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a fantastic book, but she's also done lots of shorter essays, the New York Times and I think New York Magazine, um, just about the Christian uh, political world. And I think that she has a very fair-minded and very insightful approach with a lot of humor um, that Hmm. I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I look at her as a model as well. Yeah, yeah. All right. Pete, any other thoughts on your end? Yeah, I think I'll just end uh, with we're called Solidarity Hall, and I'd love just testing out. You'd be our first. We're testing this out on what does solidarity mean to you, um, and and you know how would how would you explain it to someone? You know, it's not a word in our politics hmm. uh, today, but it was a very powerful word in many movements, and I just. Um, love if you have any final thoughts to the crowd of folks promoting solidarity. Yeah, that's a really good question. I've never thought about how I would answer that before. <laughs> um, the principle of Catholic social teaching. It's also a principle of uh, socialist politics. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the words might not be used in the exact same respect in um, those two different contexts. But I do think it has an important overlap, and I would say that that is a willingness to um, make the boundaries between yourself and others more porous. Mm-hmm. So instead of thinking of yourself as one point in the line and someone else, a totally different point might be on the same line, might not, you think of yourself and another person as being less different, more the same. Our interests are one, our needs are one, um, and the way that we need to ask society and politics to respond to us uh, cannot be split up. We need to represent ourselves as part, parts of a whole. Um, that are not interchangeable and can't be removed. Um, and, and I think that adhering to that way of thinking about yourself and others, I'm tied up with this person, I'm bound up with them, and they're bound up with me, um, that's solidarity. Hmm. Amen. Very good. Very good. All right. Liz, that was great. It's great to connect with you, and uh, we will be posting this pretty soon. I want to thank everybody for listening in again around the, uh, around the table here at, at uh, Dorothy's Place. And uh, Pete, take care, and we will talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me on. It's so nice talking to you guys. Great. Thanks, Liz. Talk soon. Take care, Pete.